Hello, everyone. Um, welcome to our Game Master panel this evening. I'm Stephen, and I'm uh, filling in for Gavin, so you can just call me Gavin, too. Um, this evening, we're going to be discussing fresh, exciting combat within our Game Master seminar. And as you know, role-playing games are much more than conflict and battle. Part of the fun in playing a hero is a well-designed, intense battle and fighting off the minions and the big bad boss. So tonight, we're going to get to put our expert game masters on the spot and ask them how they keep it from getting repetitive. We want you to give us your questions on how to keep the Clash of Steel fresh and fun. And uh, before we get to our panel, just a little housekeeping, we do ask that you uh, mute your mic. Um, and uh, that way, we won't get the background noise while the panelists are talking. Um, and then if you can add your questions to the GM102 question channel, and just keep that for questions in general. And um, not like Josh, who's uh, you know making comments in there instead of in the seminar chat. Um, so we do have a seminar chat as well, just for random chatter. And so if you want to indulge in that, please go ahead and do that in the seminar chat. Um, and now on to, oh, wait, before I do that, some shameless promotion. Um, um, Alpha will get mad at me if I don't do this, do some plugs. So um, we have some events coming up. October 17th is our usual Control Chaos event, where we ask GMs to host a one-shot gaming session in the game system of their choice. Um, so we need some GMs. If any of you are interested, please do drop me a message, either in Discord or through Meetup, where we organize the events. And then on October 31st, Alpha has a spectacular event planned. And uh, there's some details in uh, one of the channels further down. It's uh, called, and Alpha can interject if I don't Twilight remember, Twilight of the, of the Gods. Gods. Yeah, it's basically yep. kind of Ragnarok meets like Hotel California. And uh, we, the places are limited. I think we've got three, maybe four places left. So if you want to kind of, if you're interested at all, um, you know, hit me up for questions or whatever, or uh, sign up on um, on Meetup. Okay, and now on to our main event. As I said earlier tonight, we're going to be discussing fresh, exciting combat. And first, to get us started, I'm going to just uh, go go around each panelist. I'm going to get you to introduce yourselves and uh, using the name that you prefer to use in in Discord, and uh, just maybe a little bit about yourself. Um, maybe one of the game systems or the game systems that you prefer running and why you're interested in being here. So let's start with, uh, we'll start with Mark. Well, you know, I'll go by the name Mark. I've uh, been gaming for decades. Um, prefer Sword and Sorcery. Grew up with D&D, all the editions, really. Uh, I've dabbled with some of the other ones. Uh, and... In the last 10 years or so, I've picked up some some theater skills, a lot of improv. So I now understand why gaming was really fun for me. It was about stories, relationships, and characters. But don't get me wrong, I like a good haul of treasure and a good thumping of a dragon, too. Okay. Um, Dark. Okay, well, I usually go by Michelle or uh, my... GM name of Super Awesome GM God. I hadn't um, heard that one. <laughs> uh, just made it up. <laughs> um, no, I've been gaming since uh, I think the first Crusade in about uh, 1198. So a fair amount of time. And um, DMing for a good part of that. 
Um, I enjoy combat tremendously. It's probably one of the aspects of gaming that I think about probably the most, certainly as a player. Um, for a long time, I was, I, most of my, um, you know, I, I've done a tremendous amount of combat myself. I, I have a, a black belt, well, karate and jiu-jitsu. I do sword fighting, fencing. Um, pretty well, if there's a type of fighting that you can do have probably done it so it combat in uh, role-playing games is something that i really quite enjoy okay thanks michelle uh and on to smexy pants uh, so uh, my name is jason uh i've been doing tabletop rpgs for about three four years now uh i've got experience in pathfinder DD, as well as fate which is my new favorite RPG system that I've been using as of late. Um, I've done a variety of different uh, uh, combat encounters and kind of like expanded upon my repertoire and how to make them less boring. Um, so I'm hoping to add a bit of extra information to people who are looking to make things a little bit more dynamic in their combat. Hey, thank you, panelists. So um, I'm looking in the questions channel here, and uh, we'll start you off fairly light with uh, how do you keep combat order from seeming too formulaic when it's an initiative or other turn-based gameplay? Um, and related to that, how do you keep combat balanced when there isn't a mechanic? So let's start with, uh, let's start with Michelle. OK, well, I'm going to set off my basic principle, I think people who've heard me speak before will probably recognize that uh, fairly clearly. Um, a lot of my concern, the way I play is I like to my games to be realistic within the genre. So for example, if you're playing Dungeons and Dragons, for example, obviously there's a fantasy element, there's magic, etc. But within that, there should be a certain an element of reality. So if I jump up and down, you know, gravity works normally. If I punch you in the face, it should hurt. Um, you know, I usually try to proceed from a realism-based sort of, um, you know, system uh, within within the, uh, the the mechanics of the game. So different games, I play more than D&D, of course. I play Call of Duty and Cyberpunk and all sorts of games and they have different mechanics integrating mechanics with a storytelling is always a bit of an art form it's not there's no i can't think of any real way to delineate a specific approach because it all depends on the system a lot of it has to do with description and a lot of it has to do with your players um, i'm fairly commonly big on encouraging players to come up with innovative solutions rather than just saying I step forward and I swing my axe because uh, that's can't think of anything more dull than that. Um, it's not a video game. I also prefer for people to come up with using the environment, using their wits, however you want. And I will reward that. I usually have a statement that if you surprise me with something, then you've surprised the opponent. Um, obviously, because I am the opponent, um, and that usually has some kind of bonus. But uh, again, that's usually my approach. Okay. Um, so moving on here, let's go to Mark. Yeah, I I, uh, I 
so reflecting on what Michelle said, I think of dice and the rules and the things that we use to kind of uh, be guided by laws of physics and such laws of reality. I think those are the things that keep us honest. And the reason I think they're important um, is that they immerse the players. And when you're immersed, you're entertained. So uh, when I think of the question combat getting kind of formulaic, that's something I could see that would pull me out of the immersion. And that's why I look for little touch points here and there to bring the immersion back. Why is the encounter happening? The work I put into it as a GM ahead of time, at least for those encounters that I can anticipate, is I try to make sure I've sketched out for myself enough crib notes for the opponents that I'm going to be able to play them well as characters from their strategic decision to, you know, attack or withdraw down to the finer details of how do they react when they get hit by something that's really going to hurt? Do they feel like they have to hide it? Are they, you know, they don't even want to be here, so they're going to bawl and wail and try and hide in a corner until it's all over. All of those details build it into into an experience as opposed to a machine. So those are a few of my reflections. Okay. Jason, anything to, to add to that just about... Uh... The formulaic aspect of, of sometimes the, the 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 initiative rounds, you know, orc orc player. Um, well, sometimes what I like to do is even just prior to when I think the party's going to go into combat, I kind of like to give the enemies a bit more um, personality. So they have conversations with each other. They talk about what's going on, what how it's affecting them, how the kids are back home. Oh, great! You just had like a new baby boy. I'm so happy for you. And then them hearing that is going to be like, oh, do I really want to like murder this person? I mean, he's probably just doing his job. Kind of like give them a, a bit of sense of feel like these people aren't just like faceless minions that are here to get a bashing. They're real people with real feelings, real families, and real aspirations that they want to go through. So I kind of like to make them feel a little bit bad for killing this kobold because he has like a family of 200 back home that he's got to feed and take care of. So... <laughs> Although you might be doing them a favor. I mean, yeah, you never know. <laughs> okay. um, so I think related to that, I'm, I'm going to skip ahead to just a question from Deandra here, where what do you do, if anything, to make combat exciting for all the character classes in the party? So um, there, there's obviously fighters and certain classes that um, are geared to combat. But then you have your other classes, or you may have a player that's just developed a character that's really awkward at combat. How do you balance that out so that everybody feels that they can contribute? Um, let's go back to Jason. So what I would go back to is like we, we were mentioning previous that uh, we use the environment around us to kind of give the players a bit of a a better understanding of what they can do around it. So for example, there's like trees that a ranger could climb up and he could fire from the tree covered uh, in half cover. He could do that. Or if there's like lava around it, we got like someone who's a pyromancer that has like a way to like move that lava. If he wanted to using his abilities, he could do that. Or um, if there's a waterfall nearby and there's like a cliffside 
um, with some loose boulders, someone could fire off a fireball just above the waterfall, and those loose boulders could come down and crush the enemy. Stuff like that. Okay, cool. Uh, Michelle, do you want to add to that? Yeah, a little bit. Um, so, as probably every, I mean, we're just going to take D&D, but there's a whole bunch of other different games. As a lot of people know already, I don't tend to stock the adventures with, um, I don't tend, tend to change the adventures to be level appropriate. So it depends on where you're going. So it's quite possible that a, you know, level five party will run into a, you know, giant dragon or something. There's no, I don't, I don't really assign level. Now, what's really cool about it is it does tend to make people try different routes. Because if you're a fighter, for example, and fighters are incredibly useful, but if your every solution to the party is to charge head down, uh, swinging your axe, you're probably going to die. Uh, largely because you might face something that you just can't kill with an axe. And it makes a lot of other characters very useful. Um, we had a player who was playing a bard. And uh, she happened to be oriental and kept playing up the idea that she was a monk. Like a really powerful, mighty, cinematic monk. Because she would all do the really scary moves. And it actually tended to scare off quite a few much more powerful opponents. Okay, that, that's interesting really, role-playing in, in just adding to combat. Yeah, I mean, again, like I said, if you, I, I think that it's good to make the players uh, think of other solutions. I mean, combat, I've had lots of combats in my game, and I love innovative ways of fighting. But if your only solution is always fighting, I think particularly if I'm the DM, you're going to run into something that you can't fight your way out of. And it really requires other people in the party to, you know, step up and do other things because not, you know, it's not one solution fits all. So part of your approach then to role playing, it would be that combat is an option. It's for the players to choose whether they engage in it or how they engage in it. Yeah. And really trying to pick out the correct option is always a bit of a, um, of a trial and error, but yes, yeah, so the players usually will need to come up with different solutions. Do, to do you find the... that varies by the game system that you're using? Um, do, do some game systems actually sort of encourage that, that I'm going to smash it? Well, if you've ever played Champions, uh, yeah. <laughs> Smashing it is really a big part of play. Champions is a superhero role-playing game. If you're playing a superhero genre, um, you know, Smashing it does come into uh, to play a lot, but I still really like having um, different solutions. Well, in Champions, the part of the joy is rolling those twenty dice that you have for your hit. So twenty, twenty, my five. <laughs> I've rolled a, I've rolled a, I've rolled a hundred. <laughs> Sounds like trap. I didn't want, I didn't want to get carried away. <laughs> it's, it's really crazy with dice. It's a fun. It's a great system because you can do anything you can make any character you could possibly dream of but it uses a lot of dice uh mark did you want to add to that or yeah no i wanted to add one comment darkness okay. of gm after my own heart you, you the world should be the world and it should not be tailored to the players and i have been doing that since back in my school days when i put up posters looking for players i explicitly put on there you know 
beware. This is a campaign where there's no reason you couldn't turn a corner in a back alley and run into a vampire. I, I mean, the, the world doesn't pull any punches. And and that, along with, with things I've mentioned before, things like dice and, and rules for a reasonable amount of physics and stuff, these are the things that keep things honest. So when a players of a bunch of bashers and a bunch of thinkers come up against a bunch of blokes in a back alley, they don't know what they're facing. How do you know you need your smashers out front, right? It, it could be, a, you know, a bunch of wispy race or something like that. I, if you don't know, then it's just as important to have somebody who's not a smasher sitting in the back looking, watching for, are you about to get snuck up on by something else? Or is there something else that's going about to cut off your only means of retreat, for example, or any number of other things? Um as far as little things that I do as a GM, I, I will check in with the players who don't seem to have a lot of involvement in what's going on in that particular element of the combat. Uh, but I I guess the way I have done combats, I try to keep things varied too. Out of 10 encounters, you know, there might be three or four simple ones, but there's one or two fairly complex ones too, where it's not just a simple, everybody charges in the middle and, you know, when the dust settles, one side's the only one standing. There, there are other things. There are parts of, you know, first there's a little bit of scuffle, and then you realize, oh, we should move over here. Or, oh, we should pull out this kind of uh, device, because that's going to help us. And then, finally, somebody picks up an item in question you're both fighting for, and suddenly the stakes change, and your tactics have to change. I mean, so those are the things that uh, can make things interesting, I mean, you can't make every encounter complex. Um, and the the other thing you can do, which is planning beforehand, think about think about who you've got in the party, mm-hmm. and offer encounters that give a time to shine for those characters. Um, I mean, it, it's it's a mix of of bringing us helping write a story that's interesting to experience but also giving a feeling of being in a world potentially out of control at points so you don't know whether you're going to survive this encounter you don't know whether your character's really going to survive i mean the the campaign i'm playing now i told i told players come in with two characters because there tend to be high casualty rates so you you know if one dies you've got one to go on with before you have to make another one okay Uh, those are a couple things. I'm, I'm going to stay with you just to, to go with uh, Alpha's question, where he starts to talk about the, the concept. And, and you touched on this in your sort of response about zones and being aware of who's behind what. So different game systems offer more of a zone-based. And D&D, for example, really gets into short range, long range, all these sort of measurements of, oh, well, you're you know too close for crossbows, that sort of thing. So within that context, how do you balance sort of that theater of the mind aspect of playing and then the very positional and sometimes even getting into, you know, miniatures and mapping and all that? So what, how do you approach that? Um, do, you, do you have a favorite, a preference? Do you find one works better than the other? I'm not sure I've ever played a, a zone-based game, but as far as the, the nitpicky mechanics, 
that I suppose people could see in the three and a half or third edition, I think. Uh, there, there are times when we have encounters which pass largely without the need for a battle map because it's fairly simple, so it is kind of theater of the mind-ish. Um, but then the, the objectives are usually different, um, and, and the whole encounter is for different purposes. It's more of in a, in a role-playing sense. Um, right. and, do, and they can't be run Dungeons and Dragons or what's the system? Oh yeah. Yeah. And yeah, so I'm running you five right now. Okay. And so you don't really stick to, to some of the like spells, for example, they get really quite, oh, well, yeah. you're fifth level. So therefore you can cast this up to 20 inches and blah, blah, blah. Do you, yeah, do you, yeah, yeah, I yeah. do. Okay. I, I, I should, I should say, I mean, I'm also concerned with story. So there, there's fairness and story, and sometimes you have to balance the two. Sometimes you don't have to choose between the two. I should also say. Yeah. But uh, it, and it depends on what the players sit down, to, what what they come for, right? Some people, you know, if they don't really want the mechanics, then hopefully you have a group all together that comes for roughly the same thing, and gets what they came for. But I check in with my players occasionally. I mean, we've had we've had encounters that have lasted seriously four or five sessions. One of them. Um, and I said, guys, I'm sorry, this is going to be taking forever. And they kept saying, no, no, it's all good. We're having fun. So okay. as long as people get what they came for, it's great. Um, but there there are times, and I think of that especially in long combats like that, uh, how far do I go in looking something up? And there's a kind of a clock running in the back of my mind. And at some point, it's like, oh, this is taking too freaking long. Just just take a guess, best guess, right? That's, and I've... That comes yeah. from experience, though, right? It does come from a little bit of experience, and it also comes with a with a sense of fairness. Um, what'll often happen? I mean, we could look up every last thing, um, but we don't always. I'll I'll just ask somebody, "Hey, does anybody remember how?" And then somebody will mention it, and it goes like this. Uh, you know, we I have trust with the players, and they have trust with me to be reasonably fair and deliver an entertaining game. So. Uh, I'll say, uh, yeah, good. This sounds good. Let's just do that, okay. because it's it's reasonable enough for all of us. And I I tried very hard to set good expectations at the beginning of the game. Hey, we all came to play a game and have fun, and the kind of game we all like is uh, story, character, and we like to smash things too and pick up some treasure. So we we find the right balance. So I I know there's the times when I'm willing to just let it go and not look up every last thing. And there are other times when I'm willing to say, oh, yeah, no, that's that's beyond your range. Um, and and they're fine with that. Okay. So so a little a, a mix of, of both is what it sounds like for you. And and that sounds yeah. like the game system I'd play. There, there are so, even times, per, perish the thought, when I'll fudge a rule or disregard a rule for the sake of story or even just for the sake of a laugh or some fun. We, we okay. play for fun, right? So sometimes it's just funnier if that critical hit really would hit, you know, your own guy in the back or something like that, because it's already happened twice tonight, right? Uh, yeah. th those things are just too too funny not to pass up. Okay. I'm going to move on to, to Jason, just uh, see if you want to add to this and just talk about a little bit about balancing theater of the mind and the mechanics of the system that you're using. Uh, so fate tends to use zones more so than just like uh, movement speed. 
And the way you determine initiative is through rolling for athletics, and they're fudge dice, so it's like a plus or a minus. So it's more or less pretty easy to get initiative put away really quickly. There's not a lot of like rolling dice. Um, as for the zones, you can use like a full turn to cross two zones, but your turn's over at that. You don't get an action afterwards. Or you okay. use your movement to go into a zone, pick the area of the zone you want to be at, and then use your action to do like a shoot or a stab or a parry or whatever you want to do in that zone. Um, as opposed to like having a map, uh, it really helps, especially people who are playing Fate, to have an idea of where their character is. Theater of Mind's a little bit more difficult, I find, in Fate, unless it's like a, just like a single room. You can just quickly describe that, and then people will get an idea of where they are in that room, as opposed to the enemies. Okay. That makes sense. So that if, if it's an outdoor encounter, you'd, you'd want to actually do some rough mapping. It doesn't have to be detailed mapping for Fate. Do you mm -hmm. run other systems as well? or? or... Oh, yeah, I do D&D &D as well. And with D&D, &D, I also do a mixture of theater of mind as well as um, having maps. And again, like I just base it off of, like the size of the area. So if they're in like a little shop, I'm going to do theater of mind. It'll be simple to throw together. But if it's like a giant expansive battlefield with battlements and walls and several different pieces of artillery and millions, or I should say thousands of people just like fighting each other, then I do a big battle map. But I will describe that as uh, as broad as I possibly can, just to keep the action moving. Okay. Uh, Michelle, did you want to jump in here and add anything to this? Oh, sure. There's a bunch. Um, so, well, I guess, first of all, the one thing I disagree with is, because uh, I agree with a lot of stuff, but uh, one thing I do, I don't touch dice. Uh, it, Again, like I said, yeah, different goes, styles, right? Well, to me, it goes with reality is reality. The problem I have with maps in general is that they tend to lead to a very video game kind of kind of play. In that, you're basically playing characters that are acting a lot like weapon platforms. Uh, you know, shoot here, shoot there, and they're not using the environment very much now. I do use maps because I do play D and D. I do I'm GMing D and D, and they're handy, particularly for position and all that. But I like to. I think if you add more description and um, more um, more elements that you know what the environment is, they get a better sense of what the environment is like, and that actually leads to more possibilities. I, I really hate when it just devolves down to. You know, I step here and then I swing my axe and then I step here and I fire my bow. And I, that's literally sort of, I mean, video games do that a great deal better than you could do, you know, with a map in D&D. &D. Um, oh, okay. to, to me, that's inc incredibly dull. I, I'm going to get us to go, go on. I'm going to stay with you, Michelle, though, because it's uh, getting to Alpha's question about uh, in systems that rely on stats and mechanics, and he uses D&D &D as an example. How do you design a major encounter that feels super dangerous but doesn't result in a total party kill? And I had to stick with you because you said you had a super easy answer for this one. I do have a super easy uh, answer. My games are super dangerous and they sometimes result in TPKs. So you don't try to try to pull it. You're like, if, if you want to rush in and you're aware it's a big dragon but you're a little gnome, yeah, well. That's the thing. You shouldn't. It. What's, what's the right word? 
I think that people should try to role play their characters as best as possible. That's like if you, I have a responsibility as a DM to try to present a, 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 an entertaining world, an interesting setting, uh, um, you know, all the, all the interactions. I think the one thing that I would put on the player is that they play their character relatively well. Very few characters want to die. Um, you know, and a lot of players to me, because they've been sort of, if they're used to playing in a game that sort of, they call the, in parlance, uh, um, nanny games, where you're basically, you know, you're kind of having your hand held through the, through the game because there's no real chance that you're going to die because things are more or less adjusted to, you can always take them. Then they tend to have really poor responses where they will charge a dragon because as far as they're concerned, nothing really bad can happen. And then it happens and it's, um, you know, <laughs> some sometimes traumatic, but okay, but always, inter- but always entertaining. We had um, <laughs> it's a learning moment um, because I mean, for example, we had a, a, a relatively new person to the game that I was playing, and um, I had an encounter that was basically based around a Tarask being loose, <laughs> and everyone knows it's that's a bad thing, and. Um, Everyone had the capability of flying, so mostly everyone basically took off and just went up because, well, Tarras don't fly. Except this one player had a lot of powerful items and stuff and grew himself to giant size and charged the Tarask. And that lasted basically <laughs> one round. Okay. That long. <laughs> uh, it, was, uh, it was not a particularly good move. And uh, and that's the thing. I, I You know, it, it's... Um, yeah, like like I said, it's a it's a learning moment. Okay, um, Mark, did you uh, want to make a comment here about uh, balancing that sort of uh, the feel of super dangerous, but not necessarily a total party kill? Total uh, well, kill? I I will agree um, that when there's a real chance for characters to die, and and they sense that, and they feel that in the game, they can tell. It it puts that it it injects that much more meaning into their successes. If okay. there was no real risk that they were ever going to die, what does a victory in any encounter really mean? What does it feel like? Is that part uh, of keeping it exciting and fresh? Is, is there I, actually I a real so. risk? I, I think probably one of the highlights of, I would say, my entire GM career, I may have mentioned this last time I was a, a panelist, um, at the end of the big bad boss encounter when they finally won... <laughs> It had taken so much effort and tenacity, the players literally jumped up from the table, grabbed each other, and danced around until the light broke. <laughs> okay. I mean, cool. it, it, and to me, I was just astounded. It's like, wow, they were really into this. So, but if if they had felt that there was no chance that they would lose, I don't see how they could have reacted that way. So. I think that's part of the fun, um, and and not everybody comes for that. You need to check with your players when you start a new new campaign. What do they come for? Because they may not be players that you really want to play with, or you may not be a GM they really want to play with. That's that's part of the magic. And I've I've counted myself so lucky. I've somehow got a great collection of players, like almost every time I've played. Uh, other, other than that, I mean, I've I've had experiences where it's almost been 
a TPK. And and I I find myself stuck at that point. It's like, do I rescue them or do I let it happen? And I've kind of had that happen in, in this latest campaign and and fell back on story. What are we here for? There's a story that's happening. And so I tried to connect dots that made sense for players. It ultimately resulted in three out of, I forget, eight characters dying. They did ultimately manage to get two of them back, but one of them really did die. Uh, and it, was, it wasn't easy, but it was an interesting learning uh, experience that certainly so, fed into their, their next similar encounter. It, in that situation, was it simply poor choices or just the randomness of the di dice that sort of led to that result? Um, it, I, honestly, innocent, unwitting, poor choices. Okay. It's a big, bad, powerful world. They made a left turn into, quite frankly, an advanced chapter that w wouldn't have been, you know, first choice for first and second level characters. Oh, they, uh, they, they jumped ahead in the chapter, did they? <laughs> yeah, okay. it, was, it was in the same town, but something I wasn't expecting players to, to get into until they'd gone away, done several other things, and then come back at a higher level. Okay. So I thought, well, okay, the world pulls no punches. This is the way it goes. I mean, I... I, I try to, as it goes with traps and a lot of other things, I think you should leave clues for players to avoid certain overwhelming things. But I think it's okay to make them, you know, they should have a reasonable chance, but you sh don't have to make it easy. Otherwise, you get back to the thing that, well, they can never do any wrong, right? Okay. I'm going to move on to Jason here. Um, Jason, want to comment on uh, sort of balancing the... Uh... The, the excitement of the encounter versus a uh, total party kill. Uh, yeah, so the party that I have playing in my campaign right now, um, I've always put onus on the fact that you're currently underestimated. I do tell them that because I say, okay, the big bad, he just thinks you're just a thorn in his side. He's sending some mooks after you to try and deal with things. That's, that's kind of like the difficulty that they were feeling at first. And then I warn them ahead of time. It's like, okay, as you keep foiling his plans and as you keep messing with his idea of taking over and dominating this like world you're going to find it increasingly difficult to defeat him because he's going to take you as a serious threat now so i i do tell my players ahead of time it's like i'm going to be ramping up the difficulty but i'm not going to flat out send like 200 orc veteran warriors after a party of five just to like stomp you I'm not going to do that, but I do give them a heads up. And there were times where I actually had one of my characters come up to me and say, hey, how come you keep trying to kill us? And I'm like, I'm not trying to kill you. The bad guy's trying to kill you. <laughs> and how many times have I downed your characters and not actually killed them? Like, done, done that final blow. And she says, you've never done that. I'm like, yeah, I'm saving that for later because <laughs> i'm just like he's underestimating you he wants to capture you he wants to maybe turn you to his side because you guys are thrown in his side but you seem to be formidable you know opponents so he's like maybe i could bribe a couple of you to come over to my side and we could take over this world and dominate it together and they refused every single offer so now at this point he's just like you know what i'm just gonna kill you then because you're you're just making everything worse so okay. 
that's kind of like how I go at it. Like I don't outright try and like as soon as a character is down, I don't try and dogpile them with all nearby enemies until they're completely dead. Um, another thing that I've actually started doing, which I think is uh, really interesting to ramp up the the um, the combat a bit, is you are responsible for the death saves. Make the GM responsible for them. So if someone gets downed, you roll the die and you don't tell them what it is. You just mark it on like a little sheet of paper for yourself. So then if it's next turn, you roll again, there's a good chance that, hey, maybe he got like a critical fail and he's already got two death saves. If we get this GM to roll a second time and he fails, this character's dead. Like it really makes them a little nervous. Like I got to help this guy get back up. Otherwise, there's a good possibility he could die. As opposed to like having them rolling, go like, okay, good. I have another like, I don't know, one or two turns before I really have to start worrying about this person. Okay. So that yeah. that gets your entire party then engaged in sort of what's happening to that player, not the. It's it's the meta playing, right? You're avoiding exactly. That I'm review. I'm removing yeah. okay. the meta gaming where it's just like, oh, he already did like one save. He's fine. We can leave him for now. Okay. Thanks. Mm -hmm. I, uh, sorry, can I throw in one thing real quick? Yeah, come, uh, we'll come back to you, Michelle. Go ahead. Sorry about um, Just from what he said, it kind of uh, reminded me of something I do as well. Um, there's actually a reason. Like, For example, if there's a good reason that someone wants to kill someone, um, and they can, they will, if the bad guy wants to kill someone. But say, for example, there's a number of reasons why I might not kill the players, and, I'll, and they, they have to be rational. To me, a good example is you talk about the coup de grace, right? Um, I've been in, you know, actual, in, in, in essentially re recreation battles, but you don't have time to do a coup de grace. You've got lots of other things going on, and you don't want to die yourself. So if the battle's still going on, I'm not going to have them come around and then coup de grace. Um, and if you're smart and uh, one of your players is down, you may want to pull them out before the before the battle is over and they do have time to coup de gras. Uh, okay. Secondly, it's also the thing of like power. Um, someone who's incredibly powerful wouldn't necessarily go out of his way to kill, you know, so the non-coms. I mean, if you make yourself a pain in the arse, well, yeah, he will. But generally speaking, like, for example, I could have a 20th level thief steal everything that the first level party has, but what do you have? You know, you got some pennies and, and uh, you know, a piece of cheese. It's not really worth the effort. Okay. So again, there's there are reasons to that, but again, sometimes you just got to kill them. Okay, well, this has been an interesting conversation, and, and I think it leads into Josh's question, which is really playing your um, enemies, the minions, the, the, the sort of the the personas of the GM that you bring to the game intelligently. So um, it's doing things like, and he comments about tricks in the fight. So um, adding some mechanics, things like, and his example is going into a blue dragon lair where the floor is electrified so that it enhances the breath weapon of the blue dragon. So how do you set that up for, for your, it could be minions, it could be the bosses, but so that they're setting the advantage for themselves and, and create that sort of extra charge for the players. Um, let's start with Mark on this one. Well, I, for, for significant encounters or characters, I think about their whole background and their motivation and what, 
what the heck would they have done? Uh, there's a whole history of how they got to the point of m- the encounter with uh, the players' characters. So if it's, for example, a very powerful wizard, this guy is clearly very intelligent and resourceful, and and there's no way he wouldn't come with a whole bunch of prepared defenses to say nothing of contingencies, certain combinations that he knows are going to work well for certain things. Um, and, okay. and also, as it's appropriate to the story, maybe he knows he's going to run across these people, so what does he know about them ahead of time? I try very hard to compartmentalize information in my brain so that each each NPC has, you know, the appropriate store of knowledge to act on, to take advantage of, but I also try to be conscious of what they don't know and what they're going to have to learn in the encounter. So how do you balance that with making it seem like you're overpowering that that enemy or that NPC that you're playing? Because it can seem to the players sometimes that, oh, well, you're using knowledge that, that you have. So how do you balance that out? Well, like I just said, I have to think about what they don't know also. Right. So when I think about and it, the hard part is when a particular NPC does have a lot of knowledge of player characters, I have to spend time thinking about what do they don't know? What what are the faults of this NPC? What are Where is this person going to make their mistakes? Um And to be conscious of that going into a combat. So when I see the players moving into an area that uh, I've I've thought about ahead of time that, okay, this could be a kind of a a neglected side for this guy, then I have to try to leave a little bit of elbow room for something to not work or something to escape his notice. Because it it often doesn't escape my notice because I know everything about the, the PCs, right? Yeah. Okay. Uh, Mar- um, it was Mark just talking. Michelle, uh, did you want to comment on sort of how you play intelligent NPCs? Some of the tricks. Michelle? Sorry, microphone had moved. All right, so I tend to agree um, with the how the NPCs think. Like, I won't... It's always important to play the characters or the NPCs or the you know the the bad guys if you will or however you want uh, in a way that is realistic so first of all unless they're mindless undead no one wants to die uh, generally speaking so there's going to be a certain amount of caution um involved they're not just gonna you know swarm like if you've just fought a guy that you know if you're fighting a guy who's just killed the uh you see that in movies all the time if i if i see a guy who's just killed like 15 of my uh of the toughest guys I know, I'm not running into him. You know what I mean? He's just, you know what I mean? You ever see like those movies where like the, the, the hero is killed like, you know, 50 guys and the guards keep coming? If I was a guard, I'd be like, ah, oh, no, I, I, I quit. <laughs> the heck with you. Um, you know, it, again, also they don't necessarily know how powerful you are or how, how powerful the PCs are unless they have a reason to, to know that. Um, you really got to consider what the NPC know and uh, how they would behave. So, and it's, I love doing, um, you were talking about trick fights. I love doing trick fights. Uh, I love, if I've got a smart NPC, I will use them as smart as possible. And um, they'll use ambush and they'll use however, whatever they can. And if you 
just blithely walk along, you know, singing a jaunty tune, you probably will get, you know, arrows in the back of your head. Um, so, um, but it is important to play the NPCs realistically so that they don't know what they don't know and they do know what they do. Okay. And that actually can lead to the PCs having some advantage even in fights that are nearly impossible. So might you, for certain NPCs, actually script out how they might do a battle? Like, do you have something written? You know, if, if encountered, they will always cast this first or do this first. Do you, do you actually do that? Generally speaking, I know the NPCs well enough that I have a general idea how they're going to behave, and it really will depend on the circumstance. Um, a good example is it really depends on what kind of NPC. If he's the big bad, for example, as people have often uh, said, he will usually use minions to gauge your power. That's a great way to find out how powerful the, the, uh, the PCs are, is you throw a whole bunch of minions at them. If they wipe them out like, you know, like chaff, uh, then you think to yourself, well, maybe I'll retreat and, <laughs> you know, figure out something else. If they struggle with it and you go, well, you know what, I can, I can kick these guys around and I'll, maybe I'll come in myself. Okay. Um, really, again, like I said, it's just a question of playing them like they're real people rather than playing them like they're um, video game opponents. I always thought, like, if you ever play, uh, like, uh, role play, uh, sorry, uh, video games, I always thought that as many things as you kill, everything in the area would just sort of depart the area. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God, he's here. Run. Run for your lives. Oh, that's not the way video games work. <laughs> no, they're not you, even so, though you killed 300 of them. I'm gonna I'm gonna get Jason in here to to comment on um, intelligent NPCs and and how they do their battle plans. So I'll I'll take a different approach to this because like when I was first uh, learning how to DM, I created this character. He's like literally one of my favorites I ever came up with. His name was uh, Parashka the Rakshasa, okay. and he spoke in a Russian accent. And he was just like this conniving, manipulative person that was kind of like behind the scenes. And he ran, ran like this underground fighting ring where he had a bunch of people indebted to him, uh, fighting this ring for him and making more money. And if they won enough times, like he might let you go. He might not. It all depends. Um, but the one mistake I made with this guy is because I didn't really focus too much on his like abilities as a melee fighter i i kind of focus more on like he's kind of like a background bad guy that uh is supposed to get these players to get to the next bad guy who he's working for and when they got into a combat encounter with him uh, i gave him like two bodyguards and himself but then i quickly realized this guy is not meant for melee combat and they dispatched him very quickly after those two guards were taken care of so I was a little disappointed after I put in so much work with this like background character that he just gets smacked down in like three, four rounds. But it wasn't until I looked into Rakshasa more after the fact that I realized that they are technically demons and they can come back after a certain amount of time. So I'm like, <laughs> yes, I can bring him back. And then the players are going to be so surprised and they're going to ask why. And I'm like, because he's a demon. And the only way to kill him is if you go to like the demon realm and find his soul quote-unquote, and destroy it there. And then all of a sudden, they're just like, okay, so we'll kill his mortal coil, or his mortal uh, body, and then we're going to travel to the demon realm, and then we're going to end him for 
like completely. So it kind of gave him incentives. Like we just want to get rid of this guy because he's annoying us. So I thought that was a a clever way around that whole thing. Okay. Um, So I'm going to move on to the next question here from Joshua. Um, And uh, it's a little comment about random encounters. So um, I'll expand on this slightly. And uh, first of all, um, we'll stay with with Jason. And do you use random encounters? And if you do, how do you make them feel significant or immersive um, within your game system? Um, I have specific tables depending on sort of like the biome they're in. So it's not going to be uncommon for them to run into like a handful of direwolves if they're in the mountains or run into a bandits if they're like on a well-traveled road on the countryside. It would be a little odd for them to find like, I don't know, uh, a great worm in the middle of the ocean. So you don't want to use tables like that. But um, as for like making them important and immersive... um, I need to have a reason for it to happen, in my opinion. Uh, I just don't want these things to show up just to kind of break up the monotony because a lot of my players do like the roleplay aspect. And I tend to focus more on like them having conversations with NPCs or like enjoying sort of like roleplay with each other as they're traveling or going from a different place to a different place. I might have some like unique... Um, encounters but they will most likely not be combative they'll find like some like random ruin that they could explore and find a bunch of clues on why it's like a ruin and who's the god that was there that type of thing why why would might you use a random encounter so just to expand on that slightly because it sounds like you like to plan things out but why would you insert a random encounter what's what's the point of it i would say the point of using a random encounter is um at first, I would think you'd have to gauge the characters and see how, like, their, I don't know, attention is right now. If 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 it kind of feels like they're they're falling by the wayside and not really, like, enjoying themselves too much, it would break up the monotony of just, like, having something happen just randomly out of the blue. Or even, for example, if they're doing a specific task or quest, throw a wrench in there and say, oh, but this guy, you're going to have to, like get the password from and you can't kill him because if you kill him then this person is going to tell this person and then you'll have all the guards after you that kind of thing so it it adds a little extra element of like maybe a bit of a twist that they they don't expect that they're going to have to like circum circumvent okay uh, michelle do you uh use random encounters and how might you insert them or, or, or make them feel like a real combat so i have a combination i i do have scripted encounters so if they get to a certain area that has a something that's going on then you will definitely run into that and i also have random encounters because well sometimes stuff just randomly well stuff shows up you cross a cross a forest i mean you know you might not encounter anything or there might be you know a bear or almost anything um i agree with the idea that i use uh biomes specifically so i have you know, different, uh, you know, when you roll, you have different biomes. So you, but I also have, so let's say, for example, you roll a D hundred and you roll a hundred, you might actually run into something completely unexpected, even for that biome. Um, cause sometimes stuff happens. Um, you know, um, but, uh, overall they're usually area appropriate, but they're definitely not always level appropriate. That's part of the fun, though, with the random encounters. Um, Mark, did you uh, want to add to this? 
Yeah, uh, even when I have random encounters, there's there's a bunch of thoughts um, that do go into it. I mean, I may roll some. I, I may just decide, okay, I'm going to roll a die for, you know, four or six or eight different parts of the day if they're doing long distance traveling, and just decide, okay, if any of these dice rolls a one, we'll have a random encounter. But even for that kind of a random encounter, um, the the reason I have them is because I want the players to have to work to determine what's important. Okay. Uh, so you don't, you know, when you run across somebody, is it one of the DM scripted encounters or is it random? How do we tell the difference? Well, in a good story, it, you know, an important, uh, fateful encounter should, pro you know, sometimes can just seem random and that can be part of the fun or enter entertainment story, okay. right? So, that's so part of how you keep your players on their toes and, and a little bit more engaged? Yeah. Okay. Now, when it, when it happens, um, I try to think about, so where were these creatures in the last 10 minutes, two hours, day? What were they doing? What's, what's their reason for being here? So that gives me some idea of how to play them. And so when they first say, oh, hey, oh, you know, where are you off to? I already know what they're doing, where they're going, why they're there from their point of view so that it gives it a pretty realistic feel um and that's how you can take in my view that's how i turn something that looks random into just part of the background scenery but there are times you can use random encounters for other things to paint your whole world one of the other things i try to do too is that to have themes in my campaign and some of the some of the themes are really for background detail and sometimes the themes do relate to elements of the plot like if you un if you dig into it and understand this theme it will help you unravel a puzzle later or something like that okay so i may find a way to weave one of those themes into the random encounter in some particular way so say there's a duelist in the party maybe i'll put some really obstinate asshole in the random encounter Who's carrying a rapier? <laughs> Which means suddenly, do the duelist senses? Oh, maybe I should, you know, get in a fight with this guy, right? And and there's, I, some people call it fun and games. Sometimes there's just fun and games, things that relate to the fun parts of certain characters. And especially if you have a character, this relates to another question earlier. If you have a character who hasn't had a lot happening in that session, and so it seems like they've been really quiet, you're wondering, oh, are they really engaged? A random encounter can be a way to engage with that player, one of those players' characters, and try to engage one of their fun points. Right. So if they had, you know, somebody who's, uh, you know, the the nerdy book reading mage who just, you know, you've had a lot of slug and and toe to toe encounters, maybe you're going to have some random encounter that somehow is going to engage with with the book nerd, right? Okay. That that's. So I'm going to use that to actually go to the, the last question from Alpha here, which is that, that sort of in immersion, finding that right balance between realism and cinematic. And so he uses the example of a, a character that might be a swashbuckler who um, has really cool acrobatics and wants to do all these sort of, you know, I'm going to swing from this and that. How do you allow for that within your encounters and allow the players to, to add that little bit of flavor. So stay with you, Mark. Um, we're gonna we, we, we're getting short on time, so I'm gonna ask you to keep this fairly short. I I love it when players add that kind of detail, um, and 
and I, I like to try to find some occasions to reward it. So it's not a waterfall of favor, but I think the players should feel like when they add that extra frosting, there should be some sugar in it for them. Okay. So I, I think it's okay. And it, for me, it's a, it's a balance. I'm not married to the rules, but the rules make a structure that means people know how to measure risk. Okay, thanks, Mark. Uh, Michelle, a little short comment on this about uh, the, the cinematic and, and realism for players that want to, you know, I'm going to do a tumble into the middle of the orcs. Okay, so again, my stuff, my, my basic principle is, again, somewhat uh, to, towards realism. But as I said, I love it when players come up with different solutions. On, on the other side, they, these are solutions that have to actually work. So, for example, I've, I've actually played a, a base washbuckler who was dex-based and really flashy. But, again, no one really wants to die. So if you're just going to do a, a roll into the orcs, you best have an actual you know, plan on how you're going to act <laughs> the orcs to just you know, pound you into the floor. Oh, uh, you're just no fun, because that's what my character would do. Just roll in the middle of them. <laughs> And then, then your next character will probably not do that. Uh, but that's okay. There's, there's hundreds of characters. Um, final word to Jason on this. Um, yeah, I'm all for uh, letting someone do something uh, reckless if they want to, uh, as long as they know the consequences of their actions. Uh, it goes back to that old um, story about like how this uh, dwarf is falling. He's wearing full plate armor. He's falling through the air. And he's like flapping his arms and the, the DM is like, okay, I guess make a deck save. And then he rolls a net 20. And then all of a sudden they see this dwarf flapping his arms fast enough that he's like raising off the ground and getting back up uh, onto the cliffside. And I'm like, okay, I won't do that. But maybe just so happens that there's a branch nearby that you can grab onto that you just so happen to like see in the nick of time and then you grasp onto that and you can like smack against the cliff and try and climb your way back up. But um, again, it all depends on like how realistic we're going to go for. Okay. Okay. Thank you panelists. Thank you, Mark, Jason, and Michelle. It's been really enlightening. Um, I'm going to look for your next games because you all sound like GMs that I'd like to, to join for a session and uh, um, test out your combats. So thank you very much. And uh, thank you to our audience for some great questions and for participating this evening. And just a reminder that uh, go to our meetup site. We have future GM sessions coming up. And uh, we've got some events in the future. So thanks, and have a good night.